Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. In this show, we'll be talking about bare-knuckle fighting and Bristol's links to this once popular sport. The first recorded prize fight took place in 1681 between a footman of the Duke of Albemarle and a butcher. The butcher won. The first recognised champion of England was James Fig in 1719. Fig was so good and so popular that he opened an amphitheatre on Oxford Row, now Oxford Street, London, and was attracting the sporting gentry. Fig reigned as the champion for 11 years, until Jack Broughton in 1740, earning the title Father of Boxing. In the 18th century, boxing, or pugilism as it was called at the time, was winning a central and cherished place in everyday English culture, which it never quite lost. It became one of the most popular sports in Georgian England and drew huge crowds, involved vast sums of money, and enjoyed a fervent support despite its condemnation and persecution by moralists, magistrates and preachers. Aristocrats of the first order were enthusiastic fans of what they called the art of self-defence. The Prince of Wales, who would become the future King George IV, organised fights. Lord Byron took boxing lessons, and Secretary of War, the Honourable William Wyndham, even missed a parliamentary debate in order to watch a fight. Boxers enjoyed huge public attention. They were heroes. Songs were written in their honour, engravings of them were sold, and their names were known to everyone, including those who opposed the sport. An indication of the sport's popularity can be found in the Universal Register, which abhorred pugilism, but regularly reviewed boxing matches, explaining that... This amusement is not of the most humane kind... Yet as a fashionable sport, its demands are notice. Word of the Week Today I've gone all the way back to the Georgian era to bring you... Barking irons. Now, if I got my barking irons out and pointed them at you, you should be scared because those are pistols.
pugilism consisted of bare-knuckle fighting with some wrestling moves. Until the middle of the 19th century, there were no weight divisions, limits on the number of rounds, or a limit on the time each round lasted. Fights were conducted in rural areas, far from the reach of local authorities. The date of a fight would be fixed, but the location was not publicised until the day before, so as not to give the magistrates time to stop it. People travelled a long way and overcame considerable obstacles in order to watch a fight. Working men, members of the middle class and gentlemen stood shoulder to shoulder around the prize ring. Matches began approximately at noon and lasted until dark or until one of the fighters gave in. Death in the ring or shortly after a fight was not unknown, but the great sums of money the winner received proved to be an enticing incentive for working class men. In Britain, there was big money in boxing. Though the sport was technically illegal, it was well respected and well attended. It also had a set of well-defined rules, which Brian Phillips wrote about in a fantastic piece for Grantland. Bouts were held outdoors, on bare ground, in rings marked off from fields. The fighters wore no gloves, which probably made them safer. Gloves were introduced to protect the hands, not the head, and allowed fighters to punch harder. But rounds didn't end until one man or the other went down, and there was no limit to the number of rounds that could be fought. After a fall, fighters had 30 seconds to return to the scratch, a mark in the middle of the ring. The Bristol fighting scene grew out of the city's right to hold an annual fair at St James. It was originally a horse fair, where trading and exhibitions of riding took place. Stands were hired out for trading and exhibitions, and the profits were distributed to the parish poor. By 1795, the fair took place in the first two weeks of September, with exhibitors from all over Europe. The original concept of the fair had gone, and it was basically an annual excuse for Bristolians to have a fortnight of binging on a truly massive scale. As you can imagine, over time, the fair degenerated into a collection of sideshows, featuring wild animals, so-called freaks, and exhibits ranging from the athletic to the obscene. In 1837, things grew so out of control that the fair was discontinued due to objections from the community. One of the activities from the fair was the boxing booth, which was very popular. For a small fee, you can enter a tent containing a boxing ring and fight against one of the employed fighters. Should you last a stipulated amount of time, you get a cash prize. There was always some trickery to entice the unaware. For example, the house fighters would pretend to be a little bit weaker than they actually were and would show this in the sparring they would do before each match started. Also, you would have people planted within the crowd who would stand up and volunteer to fight and obviously win, which would get more people involved. Amongst the crowds of sailors, dockers, colliers and tough locals was a 14-year-old Jem Belcher, a butcher's boy who was mesmerised by what he was seeing and dreamed of entering the ring himself. (laughs) 
Jem Belcher was born in St. James Back, Bristol, on the 15th of April, 1781, into a boxing family. His maternal grandfather was Jack Slack, the bare-knuckle fighting champion of all England between 1750 and 1760, and his brother-in-law was Bob Watson. He was a naturally gifted fighter, but his career was short, as he died in 1811. Jem's younger brother, Tom, was also a pugilist, as was his elder brother. It was also said that one of Jem's sisters was a pugilist. A Bristol newspaper in 1805 said, Miss Boucher, a sister of the heroic brother, had a fight with another woman in one of the city streets, seconded by her mother, the combat lasting more than 50 minutes. It was at the Lansdowne Fair near Bath that Jem first attracted attention. The Booth champion then, in 1798, was a brute of a man called Bob Britton. Jem was only 16 at the time and didn't take much persuasion from his friends to challenge Britton and go for the cash prize. Britton's initial arrogance quickly changed to shock when Jem won. He was so incensed to be humiliated in front of his home crowd that he immediately challenged Jem to another fight with the raw uns, which means without the mufflers used in sparring matches. Jem agreed and his brother-in-law put a stake of 40 guineas each side, winner take all. This fight attracted a lot of attention and news spread around the area about the apparent mismatched event. Over 2,000 people turned up at a field in Hunnam, near Bristol, to witness the contest. The bets were four to one on the bath brawler, and there were even bets on how long Jem would last. 35 minutes later, Bob Britton was being dumped into the back of a cart to be taken back to Bath, a battered wreck of a man. In 1799, Jem Belcher left Bristol for the prize ring of London. He was lucky because an old friend of his grandfather, Will War, who had fought Mendoza in 1794 for the championship, was a host at the one-ton public house in German Street and offered Jem lodgings. Will had connections in the world of the prize ring and was a shrewd judge of fighters. Jem had now grown into a fine specimen standing at 5 foot 11 inches tall and weighing 13 stone. Though not heavily muscled, Jem had lithe, powerful frame and a deep conviction in his own ability. On the 12th of April, 1799, after a fight of 33 minutes, Jem beat Tom Jones of Paddington at Wormwood Scrubs in the middleweight championship of England. He then drew with champion Jack Bartholomew in a 51-round bout in 1799, but in the following year, on the 18th of May, on Finchley Common, the 19-year-old Belcher, after 17 rounds, knocked out the 37-year-old Bartholomew with a terrific body blow to win the rematch and become champion. On the 22nd of December 1800, near Abershaw's Gibbet on Wimbledon Common, he fought Andrew Gamble, the Irish champion. Four days before the fight, Belcher said that he was attacked by four thugs in Chelsea, whom he proceeded to beat up without getting harmed himself. 
It was suspected that someone sent those men so he won't be able to fight the high stakes match. But since he didn't have any evidence, the fight still went ahead. Gamble being utterly outplayed by his opponent's speed and agility. The Big Bristol to London the Stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. Hello and welcome to the Big Bristol to London Stroll, where we take you along the scenic routes via canals on a gentle walk to our capital. Along the way, we'll discuss the places we see and anything we spot that takes our fancy. Sometimes, we're even joined along the way by family and friends. So come join us as we take the Big Stroll. Today, we are in Bath, the largest city in the county of Somerset. It's named after its Roman-built baths, which it's also very well known for. The city became a spa with the Latin name Aqua Sullis, or the Waters of Sullis, around 60 AD when the Romans built the baths and a temple in the valley of the River Avon, although hot springs were known even before then. Bath Abbey was founded in the 7th century and became a religious centre. The building was rebuilt in the 12th and 16th centuries. What strikes you when you walk around Bath is the colour of the buildings, the majority of which are built from the lovely honey-coloured Bath stone. Unfortunately, everything was still closed due to lockdown whilst we were there, but it didn't stop us from enjoying ourselves. We found a place that sold ice cream, which included rather unusual bacon and maple syrup flavour, which we didn't try. But we managed to find a bench outside the abbey and were lucky enough to listen to the music of Nick Jovic Sus as he played some really lovely, upbeat traditional music on his fiddle. It was so nice to sit in the sun on a bench outside the gorgeous abbey listening to this talented street entertainer playing some fantastic violin folk music. You could tell that live music was one of the things missed during lockdown, as there were people there clapping, singing and dancing. As we continued our journey, we stopped off at the George Inn, mentioned in the Bath Mystery episode back in February, The story about the death of the maid, Elsie Wilkie, whose remains were found in a cave. It was closed, but it's always amazing being in a place that you've done some research about and trying to imagine what it was like when the event occurred. As we continued on our journey to our next stop of Bradford-on-Avon, the scenery changed leaving Bath, and we saw some amazing views of the Cotswolds. I would suggest this gentle panoramic walk to anyone. It's very easy and anybody of any ability can do it. There's so much that you can see and do in Bath. It would take a whole show all by itself. But this walk takes you through Bath and when you come out the other side you're greeted with amazing views. This particular walk was quite long and took us several hours to do. But the bus service is brilliant, so you can stop off at any time and get a bus back to Bath. As you might be aware, we're putting ourselves through the blisters, the aches and the pains to help raise money for the local charity Suicide Prevention Bristol in the name of a friend of ours who sadly passed away in March. 
If you'd like to support us with a donation, just go to Just Giving and type in Backtracker and you'll find us. Thanks in advance. Now it's time to get to the final part of our story about Bristol's history with bare-knuckle fighting. Bristol-born Jem Belcher was so popular that people copied his dress style. He invented the Belcher scarf, which was royal blue dotted with large white spots which had smaller blue spots in the centre, and this was worn by fashionable men and women. One story about the loyalty of his fans happened on a cold, black November evening in 1805, when there was a gathering of enthusiasts at the Hole in the Wall Tavern on the quayside near Redcliffe Church in Bristol. It was called the Hole in the Wall because it had a small spy hole built into the wall of the taproom, which was usually manned by a young lad. It was his job to keep a lookout for press gangs, who would take men into the military or naval forces by force, with or without notice. On this night, there was a huge debate between Jem's fans, who wore this now recognisable Belcher scarf, and fans of Henry the Chicken Pierce, who wore a yellow scarf. My grandma could beat him in the ring. (laughs) Belcher could beat chicken any day. The debate disintegrated into an all-out brawl, and the lookout got distracted. He didn't see the press gang until it was too late, and they were in the building swinging their two-foot clubs with reckless abandon. When realisation dawned on all those there, they fled to the back doors and ran. Those who didn't manage to escape found themselves regaining consciousness as members of His Majesty's Navy. Hey chaps, come on quick, let's get out of here. The press gang are coming. In July 1803, an event happened that changed Jem's life forever. He was playing rackets one afternoon with a Mr Stewart at the court in St Martin Street when a ball struck him in the eye and literally smashed it. Although this was bad news for his fighting career, Belcher had made enough money by then to enable him to settle down as a publican and he took over the Jolly Butchers in Wardour Street, Soho, London. Everyone assumed that he would never fight again as he was blind in one eye and no one challenged for his championship. For two years he maintained the dignity of champion, until the exploits of Henry, commonly called Hen Pierce, the game chicken. Although Pierce was a little older than Jem, he had been his protégé, and Belcher had brought him up from his native Bristol a few years before. Pierce stood at 5 foot 9 inches and weighed 13 stone. He was slow, and his knowledge of and skill in boxing was by no means equal to his master's, but he was very strong. In 1804, Pierce had beaten Joe Burks and the following year John Gully, after a tremendous battle which lasted for 59 rounds and one hour, ten minutes. After this, he was generally acclaimed as champion of England, and at that, Jem Belcher's bitter envy rose like a flame. He couldn't bear to see even his friend, whom he had taught and introduced to the London Ring on his own old throne. To the great surprise of everybody, he challenged Pierce and the fight took place on December the 6th, 1805, at Blythe, near Doncaster. 
The fight lasted 35 minutes in all, and Jem lost, bitterly. The Napoleon of the Ring, as Jem was sometimes called, owing to his slight physical resemblance to our great enemy of that period, was a favourite, despite his blind eye. Jem, the landlord of the Jolly Butchers, had not improved his physique during the two years of retirement. In the twelfth round, it was plain to everyone that Jem's strength was going, and he knew it himself. He made a desperate effort, but it was of no use against this rock of a man. Pierce threw him half over the ropes, so that he was at his mercy. But he stood away, and said, I'll take no advantage, O thee, Jem. I'll not hit thee, lest I hurt thine other eye. A little later, Pierce once again got Jem over the ropes in a helpless 29 position, and again stepped back, refusing to take advantage of him. In falling sideways, it was thought that Jem had broken a rib in hard contact with a ring post, he winced as he came up for the 17th round. He was not merely so weak that he could hardly stand, but he was suffering great pain. Now Pierce had the battle in his hands. He hit Jem as he pleased, as Jem had only a short while ago hit him and ended the round by throwing him. In the next round, Jem came up staggering to scratch, but once there he found that he could not even lift his arm at all and with bitterness in his heart, such as he had never dreamed of, he gave in. And Pierce, to show how strong he was, could not resist showing off by jumping out of the ring and back again and turning a somersault. The fight had lasted only 35 minutes. Jem Belcher found himself unable to resist the law of his glory days in the ring. Even after his loss to Pierce, he continued to fight. In 1807, he nearly defeated the future champion Tom Cribb, also from Bristol, before losing in 41 rounds and 51 minutes. Cribb was destined to become the biggest star of the era, and Belcher challenged him again in 1809, after Cribb had ascended to the championship, losing in 31 rounds and 40 minutes. The years of physical punishment Belcher suffered in the ring took a heavy toll on both his body and spirit. Following the lost crib, he spent a month in debtor's prison. In 1811, at just 31, he died from what appears to have been complications of an ulcerated liver. In other news today, boffins have declared that if you hear music coming from your printer, don't worry, it's probably only the paper jamming. Hey, this is Russ. This is Kyle. This is Michelle. From the Infectious Groove Podcast. Join us every Monday for the most fun you can have with a music podcast. The Infectious Groove Podcast uses a positive and fun approach as we take time every week to share our jammy jams, then dig into a thought-provoking topic discussing all decades and genres of music. You can find the Infectious Groove Podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can head to infectiousgroovepodcast.com to find us there and subscribe. We might have a controversial opinion here or there, but we always have fun with it. Oh, I'm sure I'll say something dumb. Subscribe to the Infectious Groove Podcast, part of the Odd Pods Media Network. 
On June the 7th last year, during a Black Lives Matter protest in Bristol, the statue of Edward Colston was torn down from its plinth and thrown into the harbour. One year on, the statue now forms part of a new display at the M-Shed to start a citywide conversation about its future. I was fortunate enough to go in before it was open to the public and speak to Sean Sobers and Ray Barnett, the people behind the new display. I'm Ray Barnett, I'm the Head of Collections and Archives for the City Council's Culture and Creative Industries team. I'm Dr Sean Sobers, I'm an Associate Professor at the University of West of England and a member of the History Commission. And uh, this all started for us on the 7th of June when we heard about what was happening in the city centre with the statue. And following on from that, the museum service became involved, particularly when the statue was brought out of the water. And uh, we took delivery of it, and our task at that point was therefore to consolidate it, stop it deteriorating any further, just to make sure that it stayed as it was after the protest, in effect, so that then other people could make the decision as to what to do with it next. And then ever since then, we worked with uh, Sean here from the History Commission um, as part of the team that's been developing this particular display and the approach to how we should do that. Yeah, so with the History Commission, we've worked, as Ray said, with the museum service, with the curators here at M-Shed, and we worked together and saw it as an opportunity to use the Colson statue as a consultation exercise to find out people's feelings about this moment, about this event in Bristol, which was, you know, an international event, um, and also to try to use it as an opportunity to try to move forward. You know, obviously, when the statue came down on 7th of June, it didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened for a particular set of reasons about how Bristol may or may not be, you know, uh, commemorating the history of transatlantic slave trade and also how it seemed to be celebrating slavers but not commemorating victims of slavery and a whole range of other issues as well obviously in relation to racial disparity and those kind of things off the back of George Floyd Black Lives Matter so yeah it's been you know a real privilege has been the challenge this this process and you know it's kind of uncharted territory for all of us um, but we really see this, you know, we, do, we, don't, we deliberately don't use the word exhibition. You know, it's a display, it's a work in process, and we really want the people of Bristol, particularly anyone can respond to the survey, but really interested in what the people of Bristol think and how we should move forward into the future. So is this display a permanent thing now in Bristol? No, it's very much temporary. We don't have an end date for the display, but it, but it is just temporary. As well as the survey, you know, it would be up for the lifetime of this display. Um, but we really are, you know, we really are looking at, okay, what is the permanent... Uh, position of the Colston statue because you know uh, the responsibility of any museum is to tell part of the, the story of what happened in that city so for, to not tell this story would be akin to just sweeping it under the carpet as if it didn't happen so we did feel it's a really important thing to go on. Well, it's opening to the public tomorrow um, actually so we, although we, we opened the M Shed Museum last week this particular gallery has remained closed until tomorrow um, so we, we, we're looking forward to seeing what people will say actually people are very intrigued to hear what the reaction will be from individuals when they come round so we're all um, very keen to see what people make of it what we have had a reaction already is from people who've been in to see it before we open to the public is comment about it being displayed on its back lying down 
Um, and I'd just, just like to explain that, to be honest, that it's actually us trying to be as open and honest about it as we possibly can. We constructed a wooden base to support it while we were actually conserving it and preventing it from deteriorating further. And we felt it was simplest just to show it in that way because we don't know what will happen to it next. So it's basically that work in progress. I mean, I'm really pleased so far with the reaction, even when I saw it, you know, over the year, working with the curators. Um, you know, we've been doing a lot of it, obviously, remotely because of the COVID situation. We've already been into this space personally, you know, a couple of times. So to actually see the display here now in person, I'm really pleased with how it's looking. And just from the, 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 you know, the people that have seen it, whether they've been press or other people that even work here that haven't had the chance to see it properly yet, you know, so far, it's been a good response. But I won't, I won't lie, it's, it's a nerve-wracking process, you know. It's, it's such a sensitive topic and a sensitive statue um, that we know we're not going to please everyone. People are going to get different interpretations from it. So I'm also bracing myself for those moments as well. Um, but that, that does come with the territory, really, you know. Back in the day facts. On the 29th of May in 1942, Bing Crosby recorded Irving Berlin's song White Christmas. Also on the 29th of May in 1961, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, was interviewed on Panorama, the first television interview with a member of the royal family. On the 31st of May in 1669, Samuel Pepys wrote the final entry in his diary. On the 1st of June 1967, the Beatles album Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was released. On the 2nd of June in 1692, Bridget Bishop was the first woman to be tried and convicted of witchcraft at the Salem Witch Trials in the village of Salem, Massachusetts. And on the 3rd of June in 1937, Edward, Duke of Windsor, married Mrs Wallace Simpson. He was formerly King Edward VIII of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. He had abdicated in December 1936, after less than 11 months on the throne, because of his desire to marry the twice-divorced US socialite, who was considered unacceptable as a British Queen consort. The wedding ceremony was performed by an Anglican clergyman in France at the Chateau de Cannes in the Loire Valley, after their marriage, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor lived mainly in France, moving to the Bahamas, where Edward had been appointed governor during World War II. They were largely shunned by the British royal family until 1967, when they were invited to attend the unveiling of a plaque dedicated to Edward's mother, Queen Mary. Edward died in 1972 and was buried in the Royal Burial Ground at Frogmore, near Windsor Castle. His widow died 14 years later and was buried at his side. And now a huge round of applause to the real stars of the show. And this week, I'm talking about Steve Shepherd, Henry Arnold and Johnny Locke from Bradley State Radio, as well as Carrie Ball, Debbie Townsend and Molly Jeffries from St Stephen's Drama Group right here in Sanwell, Bristol.
been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.